So I couldn't figure out when I realized which passages I was getting or which passage I thought I was getting if uh, Pastor Howard was being um, uh, especially cruel uh, to have four chapters of, uh, of the book of Samuel get handed over to me. So um, I decided to get him back and go for about an hour and a half this morning, if that's okay with y'all. Uh, go ahead, coffee. You can go over there and get some coffee. Come back, you know, just take your time. But you can't go anywhere. Uh, you have to stay. And in fact, you have to do nursery uh, at about the hour mark. Who is Ichabod? It's a question I got asked when I was in uh, a presbytery ordination exam. Now, in our circles, a presbytery ordination exam is actually seven exams long. It's in two parts. It is um, excruciating. It takes about four years to prepare for, full of seminary and other stuff. It really takes about a couple months of study beforehand. It's kind of like uh, our bar exam or something like that, or a CPA exam, or one of those uh, uh, those number ones for the accountant types or what have you. The seven series sevens or fives or sixes or whatever. Anyway, it's a um, it's a pretty long process. And um, well, I w- I took both parts at the same time. And um, in that in those parts. Uh, I actually had been studying for about three months, and I had, you know, used all sorts of study materials. They have books about it. I had a, a notebook about that big. I had about 300 flashcards. I was rolling. I was good to go. And I'd also, in the meantime, had gotten a couple exams, one from Missouri, a presbytery in Missouri, one from Virginia, if I remember, and I had gotten one from a friend about 10, that's about, was about 10 years old in my own presbytery, in my own, in, in North Carolina. And I had studied with it. No big deal. It wasn't a problem. I, I, I didn't figure. Uh, those committees run through every, uh, it changes every year, different people on that committee. I thought it was no big deal. It was just a written exam. Now, there's a written and an oral part. Well, I sat down and got my written part, written parts first, and I realized I had the exam. I had been studying from the exam. It hadn't changed in 10 years, which I guess is encouraging since the Bible hadn't changed in 10 years. But I didn't know, I had it. And so I took the exam, you know, feeling all this tremendous guilt. I cheated on my ordination exam. Well, so I quickly called, um, after I finished my exams, and I finished both parts, I quickly called the committee chair and I said, okay, you're not going to believe this, but I had the exam beforehand and I'm sorry. He said, okay, well, no worries. We'll, um, we'll, we'll, we'll look at your exam. Let's make sure you didn't fail it when you had it. Um, and, uh, and let's see how you did. And what we'll do is we'll go and... Um, and when you come to the oral part, I will, we'll, we'll grill you extra hard. Well, this is really good in the sense that I don't have to come back in three months and try again. It's really bad because they're going to grill you extra hard. Ichabod, who was Ichabod, was the easy one. Give me the reference to the, uh, to the, uh, uh, to the person with no clothes in Mark. And tell me what his purpose is in the whole overall scheme of Mark. Those, these kind of bizarre questions. Who, which king lived the shortest amount of time, or was king the shortest amount of time, and why? Um, after that, what, what, um, uh, which, which king would give you the most encouragement of a deathbed conversion? I'm sitting in obscure land, and then with that is who is Ichabod? So, who is Ichabod is what we're dealing with actually today in our passage today. And you'll learn who Ichabod is over time. Uh, but uh, Pastor Howard was alluding to it earlier. One of the reasons why we cho- chose for Samuel is because you don't know probably who Ichabod is. 
Um, I don't know. I did not know who Ichabod is. And it's not just about Ichabod. It's the stories of the Old Testament. We're digging deep into the Old Testament. We're not just in Genesis where all the cool first stuff happens or in the middle of all David's fights, which we'll get to somewhat, which is some of the fun stuff happens. And we're kind of in the middle. Uh, and there's hundreds of years of, of history that are there. And that's what we're digging into. And so we want to tell these stories. There, if you're one who calls uh, himself or herself, one who follows Christ, then you are part of a, cov- a covenant community. And this is your family story, if you will. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to go through four chapters of the Bible, and I'm just going to tell the story. We're going to go back and forth. We might bring some other stories here and there to help out. But, but it's really, as uh, Trish Hobson said to me uh, this week, she goes, is it story time at Christ Central Church? And the answer really is kind of yes. And so here we go, dig in. I'm not the greatest storyteller in the world, but we'll tell them. Here we go. It was a strange time. Pastor Howard said earlier it was a mess in Israel. It was a mess because the Philistines were in town. The Philistines were these uh, these group of Greek-speaking um, uh, sea people from uh, from from well, basically what is now Greece, and they came in inland, and they were fierce fighters. It was part of the the first Iron Age, and they were the first ones to be really skilled at at, uh, at using iron for warfare, and they were fierce at it, and they had shields, and they were known to be clean-shaven and tall, and they had spears that were straight and swords that were straight, and they were good. They were real good. They were fierce, and they were coming inland, and it's therefore, therefore, if they were coming inland, they were coming to Israel. But they weren't just very, they weren't just fierce in warfare, they were fierce religiously and so they had all these temples that would pop up here and there and they had temples of dagon d-a-g-o-n and they had temples to ashtoreth which uh, you heard pastor howard reading from before um and and there were some pretty heavy stuff there there's some pretty uh significant forms of worship um sacred prostitution it's an absurd concept but that's what it was they had sacred prostitution and things like that. Even in some records, the Philistines had child sacrifices to their gods of Dagon and Beelzebul and um, Baal and Ashtoreth. So Israel wasn't just a mess because they were being invaded by the Philistines. They were a mess because they had their own problems as well. You heard last week of Hophni and Phinehas, the two priests that were um, Eli's sons. Eli was the head priest, and Hophni and Phinehas were 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 eating off the fatty part of the meat to the of the sacrifices, the part that was set aside for God and His glory. And they got heavy under it. It says they got weighty, they got kaved, they got fat on the meat of God that was for them. And they were a corrupt people, and so they were not just corrupt in their own religious practices. They were. They were um, starting to adopt some of the Philistine practices. So Israel was a mess. They started having these asterisk poles here and there and all about. And they were a mess too. The problem with Israel's being a mess though was that they were a mess and they wouldn't admit it. It wasn't just that they were a mess. And so you have the story that you have in the text in front of you. Um, uh, start to pick up there in verse 4. With Israel as a mess... Israel's a mess and not being able to admit it. They are, their fundamental issue is that they are not worshiping God alone. They are worshiping, uh, they're bringing God in the, and they're corrupting the practices of God and they're um, adding other things to it as well, these asterisks and other things. And there's really nothing else before them. That's the main deal and that's what's going on. And so read with me now uh, from 1 Samuel 4, 1 to 6, which is that first section on page 4. 
Now the Israelites went out to fight against the Philistines. The Israelites camped at Ebenezer and the Philistines at Aphek. The Philistines deployed their forces to meet Israel and as the battle spread, Israel was defeated by the Philistines who killed about 4,000 of them on the battlefield. So you got it here, about 4,000 die in this fight, the fight, the first battle of Ebenezer Aphek. And what happens is, you can see it in verse 3, when the soldiers return to the camp, the elders, the elders of Israel ask, why did the Lord bring defeat upon us before, today before the Philistines? And they're going confused and dazed, they're scratching their head, and they're wondering what's wrong. Well, wait, wait, we're the good people, we're the, we're the chosen ones, we're the ones who have uh, God on our side. How, how did we lose to the scoundrels, the real rapscallions, you know, the really bad people who are really corruptive? I mean, I know that we sometimes adopt some of their stuff. I know that we are uh, not doing right by the sacrifice system, but come on, those are the bad guys. We're kind of rebellious kids, and you know everybody's got to be a little rebellious. We're kind of the rebellious kids. They're the scoundrels. Those are the other people's kids, you know, the ones that corrupt your kids. You know, it's never your kids that corrupt. It's always those other people's kids. They're the other people's kids. And that's what Israel's going through. How do we lose to them? God, you're always on our side, aren't you? You're always on our side. We're the disobedient children, but they're the God-haters. And so they come up with a brilliant plan. I love it. You've got you to gotta come up with a brilliant plan. That'll always get you out of, the, out of, out of uh, repenting before the Lord. Look here. Let us bring the ark of the Lord's covenant from Shiloh so that it may go with us and save us from the hand of our enemies. Let me tell you what the ark of the Lord's covenant is. The ark of the Lord's covenant is, you remember Raiders of the Lost Ark? It's... That's the Ark of the Lord's Covenant. That's the Raiders' Loft Ark. It's gold. It's got those two uh, angels on the side. Uh, it has the Ten Commandments in there, the two tablets. Uh, it's to be covered. It's not to be seen. It's not to be opened up. Every once in a while, it was allowed to add something into it. Um, uh, on once a year, not even once a year, but the only time it, something could be added into it is one time a year by the great high priest. It was just untouchable. That's what we were talking about. That, that, that's, that's what was, that's going on here. So they figure this. What we'll do is we'll bring the Ark of the Covenant back to Aphek and Ebenezer, and then we'll surely win the fight. That's what we're going to do. And so they go to Shiloh, which is where Hophni and Phinehas do, 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 these bad guys are. They go pick up the ark. Hophni and Phineas agree. And they go back and they're ready to roll. Now we got it. And they have kind of this little pep rally. You can hear um, uh, when the ark of the Lord's covenant, this is in verse 5 in that section. When the ark of the Lord's covenant came into the camp, all Israel raised such a great shout that the ground shook. So you have this incredible pep rally that's coming up. And they've got this brilliant plan. And listen to that language. The Ark of the Covenant of the Lord Almighty who is enthroned between the cherubim is here. And Israel is giddy. And so what they do is they come with this great plan. And you know what I'm talking about. You know what it's like when things aren't going right. You can figure out, I can do this. I can use God in this way. I can, I can hoodwink Him into doing something. Lord, if I just pray this way, then this, will this happen? Lord, if I could just, if I finally give up, if I finally tithe, Lord, will you, will it ultimately be my blessing? In fact, I will actually be able to get, I won't after I ever have to worry about any other money at all because I just tithe. And you kind of, you kind of rig the Lord into your own way. And that's what they're doing here. They're taking this, co- the Ark of the Covenant, this representation of Israel, and they're saying, we'll take it to war with us and we'll win. We'll surely have to win. The Lord has to make us win then because we got the little power box and we'll bring it with us. 
Think about, you know, it, I don't know if anybody's thought it, but I wonder what people feel like when they get pulled over with a fish on the back of their car for speeding. You know, I mean, somehow does the fish give you like a, you know, like a, a force field where you don't get in trouble, you don't have to cost the law, laws or something like that? Somewhere inside, I think that some of us think that. You know, it's just, if we got the fish, then we might not get as big of a fine. Well, that's kind of what's happening here. Uh, uh, they bring the Ark of the Lord's Covenant and they say, okay, then it'll work. And they're treating God and the representation of God, maybe equivalent to the Lord's table. It would be like brokering a good business deal and you bring the little elements in your pocket as you go to try to make it happen. Because you know that the Lord somehow is especially present in these places. And that's what the Ark of the Covenant was from. The Lord was somehow especially present. And they treat the Ark of the Covenant, this sacred thing, like a sacred meal, like it were mojo that you could just bring with you. That you could, you could handle and that you could bring the power for and you could be in charge of it. And that's what they do. And you can imagine that it doesn't get better, but it gets worse. And so the very next battle, that very battle, the Philistines actually see this and they hear Israel having this big pepper out and they get nervous. And, uh, I'm gonna to read to you. It's not in your scriptures, it, the part printed for you, but it says, it literally says, the Philistines got very nervous and afraid. It said, we're in trouble. That's what the Philistines said. And then, somehow, through a little bit of dialogue, they go, but be men and fight, or Israel will be our, mas- our slave masters and we will be their slaves. And then, Philistines trounce Israel. They absolutely trounce them. Seven times the people die. Seven times the first fight. Israel is utterly trounced, and it gets so much worse. If you look in verse 10 and 11, which is in your section, it's up at the top over there. So the Philistines fought and the Israelites were defeated and every man fled to his tent. The slaughter was very great. Israel lost 30,000 foot soldiers. The ark of the God, of God was captured and Eli's two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, died. It couldn't have gotten much worse for Israel. It really couldn't have. They lost, their army retreated, and the scripture says, back to their own tents. They scared them all the way back home. They lost 30,000 men. The Ark of the Covenant was captured. And I don't know if we have an equivalent in our day and age of what that meant. That was like going back to Egypt. That was as bad as it could possibly get. Now, they were treating it like a good luck charm, but it was the most important good luck charm of all. And it was like the good luck charm is now gone. And it's not just gone, destroyed, like September 11th World Trade Center. It's not just destroyed. It's more like the Statue of Liberty. Not the Statue of Liberty just destroyed, but the Statue of Liberty stolen. And taken away and mocked because you didn't have it anymore. But even bigger than that, because the Statue of Liberty doesn't have religious significance to our history as well. It's, you, can't, you can't fathom how huge this is, but Eli did. And the story goes on where Eli, uh, a Benjamite, a, a guy runs from the battlefield 19 miles. It's the Bible's own little uh, marathon story. He runs 19 miles to the story. He tells the whole town. He says, look, this is what's happened. He ends with, of course, and the Ark of the Covenant is gone. And Eli is sitting on his, uh, at, the, at the front of the, uh, of the temple, and he falls over. He falls over because he's old and he's heavy, the Scripture said. He is heavy, kaved. The word is for heavy, weightiness, glory. He fell over under the weight of his own glory. That he'd been stealing for God forever, for, for, for his entire priesthood. He fell down, kaved, too heavy because he'd taken God's glory. He dies. Hophni and Phinehas are dead. And then, then 
to hear the kind of the feel of what's going on next, the scripture goes on to talk about this is not in your in your in your um, your bulletin either. Now you get to Ichabod. Phineas has a wife. Phineas's wife. So Phineas is one of the priests. He's Eli's um, daughter-in-law, and she is pregnant during the times of this war. And she's pregnant. But when she hears of the, of the chaos that, that all has happened, that her husband has died, that her father-in-law has died, and it, Scripture says very specifically, and the ark of the Lord is now in Philistine hands, she goes into labor, and then she goes into labor, and loses, she doesn't lose the baby, she loses herself. The, she is overcome with labor, the Scripture says. And on her dying bed, she uh, has an opportunity to name the child. She's kind of having an interaction with her midwife. And she says... Uh, the, the, the midwife goes, be encouraged, it's a boy, which is a really important thing at that time. And to be encouraged, it's a boy. And she said, no, his name is Ichabod. And Ichabod, if keved is glory, if heaviness, then Ichabod is no glory. She named her son no glory because the glory had departed from Israel. That's who Ichabod is. The story goes on. The story goes on in a kind of funny way. It has two chapters that you would think would follow Ichabod. You figure, now we can learn about Ichabod, or maybe we can learn about Israel. But the next two chapters aren't about Ichabod at all. They're actually about the ark. So you have these raiders of the lost ark that come, right? These raiders of the lost ark are the Philistines, and they come. And now, Scripture makes this abrupt change from this very difficult thing this Ichabod reality, this Ichabod experience, and goes into these two chapters following the wanderings of the ark. Where does the ark go? It's a really odd kind of thing. But I want to stop for a second and let you... I don't know if you... I I feel very sympathetic towards Israel here. I feel very sympathetic towards Israel here because I haven't told you the whole story of me and, um, and that exam. You know, I quote-unquote cheated on the exam. I actually didn't. I didn't know, and, and I didn't, um, uh, and I kind of fessed up. But uh, that's not the end of the story, because I got to the oral exam, and we finished part A. And the guy asked me very innocently. He said, now, you only had the old exam for part A. You didn't have it for part B, did you? Just assuming that was the case. And for that nanosecond, you know, your whole world is going before you. And you're going, well, let's see. This has been grueling and difficult. I mean, I, I can, I, I've done real well. I passed the first part. They, 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 I can, you can feel the groove, but you know, I, I'm doing well here. But I, I don't necessarily have to go through it again, do I? I mean, I, I did a good job on that exam. I, I mean, I would have done well anyway, even if I didn't have it. And as soon as that nanosecond was over, it was, yeah, you're right. I, I, didn't, I didn't have the second half of the exam. I didn't have part B. And so I didn't cheat on my exam. I lied on my exam. The ordination exam, the thing I'd worked on for four years, the thing that was supposed to be one of the most joyous times, one of those great experiences, called by God to serve God's people, the church putting its hands over you and saying, yes, you are one to preach the gospel. And I lied. And I feel like, I felt like Israel then because Israel only had one thing that it had to deal with. And that was get rid of the Ashtoreth poles and get rid of Baal. There was nothing else. There's no wars to fight. 
There's no ministry to be done. There's no evangelism to be had. There's nothing. There's no parenting to be done. There's nothing else that needs to be done. The only thing that mattered to Israel was turn to the Lord Himself. Turn to Him alone. And so nothing else mattered. Guess what? The next day I still was employed as a, as a pastor-to-be at a church and I had to go. I had to go back and go to work. I had to do all those things. I had to go and do ministry. I've never been more listless in ministry. I've never had more difficulty dealing with those things. And I've never had more of a sneaking suspicion that I was never, ever going to tell anyone that for the rest of my life. I was sure I wasn't. It was going to be me and Jesus' little secret the whole time. And everything else I did wouldn't matter. And it didn't matter. So the story goes on to, uh, to, to tell of how this ark goes up to Philistia. It goes up there, and it's kind of a grief relief. It's not really a comic relief, though there's some funny parts. Um, it, it's this relief um, from the fact that Ichabod exists. And so it goes up to the ark, and it's in your passage, actually, in, uh, in verse 1 Samuel 5 and 6. I want to read this part to you. Um, uh, it's that second part right there, 5-1. After the Philistines had captured the Ark of God, they took it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. Ashdod's a city in, Philist- in Philistia. It's just a city they owned. They, then they carried the Ark into Dagon's temple. Okay, they brought this Ark into God's, Dagon's temple and they put it beside Dagon. When the people of the Lord, uh, when the, when Ashdod rose early the next day, the city rose the next day, there was Dagon fallen on his face on the ground before the Ark of the Lord. They took Dagon and put him back up and on the following morning when they rose, then Dagon had fallen on his face on the ground before the ark of the Lord. His head and hands had been broken off and were lying on the, on the threshold. Only his body remained. And that's why this day the priests of Dagon, nor anyone else who enters Dagon's temple at Ashdod, steps on that threshold. Basically what happened is there were two wars, the Afek ebenezers wars, and now there's these other two little wars as the story continues. And it's the Ark of the Covenant versus, um, versus Dagon. Now, this, this has got to be the alien's predator, alien versus predator equivalent at the time, right? you got these two huge gods and they're fighting, if you will. And there's this really weird thing that goes on where the Ark of the Covenant, which has already said, you know, I'm not going to be controlled by Israel and just bring my power whenever they want to. It goes over and it topples the, the, um, the, uh, the, the, the temple god. It was being brought to, to, to Ashdod as a, as a trophy. It was like a big yak on a hunting wall. That's what it was. It was a big trophy. You know, we got Israel's God and we're bringing him, bringing him home. And, um, and, um, and basically God wasn't going to let the symbol of his presence have that happen. And so he topples, uh, Dagon and they pick him up. They pick their God up and dust him off and put him back on. And then he falls. And he breaks his neck off, or his head comes off, and his hands cut off. Or hands are off, which is exactly how um, uh, the Philistines used to scare the neighboring villages when they took uh, prisoners. They would do that exact same thing. And so, basically, he comes as a trophy and leads triumphant. And there's this weird thing. Remember, Israel's not here. This is just God's story. If you ever wonder who the story of Scripture is, it's always Yahweh or Jesus or you know someone in the Trinity. It's never any of the other people like David. And here's where it's most specific: it's the box that's doing all this. That's all that's happening here. Yahweh is, is sovereignly controlling all these things. And guess what? They go. You know what? Maybe we don't need this after all. Maybe we should send it to a different town in Philistia. And so they send it off to another town. And it's the the Scripture says and the Lord's hand was heavy upon that town. And they go, and they said, the other town goes, no, 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 uh, we don't want to have that either. And um, the, um, 
And the next town goes, the scripture says, on that town, the Lord's hand was heavy upon that town as well. And here's how it was heavy. And here's a little bit of the comic relief, or not so comic, but interesting relief, is they were overcome with rats and tumors. And the and, uh, theologians and historians and, scripture and linguists are pretty sure that the tumors are one of two things. Uh, or maybe a combination of the, of the both. They're either tumors like in the bubonic plague, like the Black Death, or they're hemorrhoids. And that's what's going on, the, 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 the words used there. So, now this is a little bizarre, right? I mean, but this is your family story now, if you're covenant children. This is, a, this is your family story. God gave them hemorrhoids. And they said, that's enough. We're not doing it. We're not having it anymore. And they go and they talk to their diviners. They talk to their priests and they say, okay, what should we do? Now, here's the really funny part. The great idea for the, for the Philistine priests is to make golden hemorrhoids and golden rats and put it in a chest next to the ark and send it back on its way. Seriously, not kidding. It's in the scriptures. I'm not, this is not a joke. This is not a joke at all. This is what he does. So he has this, they say, okay, we'll do whatever. Whatever you want us to do, we'll do. And so they take two calves. They take these calves, or not calves, they take um, uh, cows that just had calves. And they put them, they make a brand new little um, cart. They take the cart, they put the Ark of the Covenant on it, and then they put the chest uh, next to it, and they put the, the golden objects right in next to it. And they say, go. And wherever the... Wherever it, it, these calves take it is where it's supposed to go. Well, guess where it ends up? It ends up riding all the way back to Israel. That's what happens. That's the, what, four, what chapters 5 and 5 and a half do. That's what's going on there. And this interlude, this object lesson, doesn't end there because what happens is, and maybe the saddest part of this entire story is that and after it leaves Israel, I mean, after it leaves Philistia, it goes straight to Israel to a town called Beth Shemesh. And Beth Shemesh, you would think, you would hope, you would have prayed that they would have got it. And that they would have been like, yes, our Lord has returned. And they did to some degree, but they thought their good luck charm returned. They weren't actually going to take away their asterisk poles. They weren't coming to say, oh God, we've missed you. It was seven months, you know. And it's not that they thought that was God, but the symbol of that was so important. That, that oh, we've missed you. We've, we've, we, have, we have been without. Um, it is so good to have the Lord, the symbol of the Lord's goodness and covenant faithfulness to us. It's so good, so right, so glad to have it. No, they started just messing with the box. They got out all the, the, the scripture goes on to talk about what happened in it. And most of the stuff is about the, the golden stuff. All the, all the stuff in the crate next to the, ne, next to the ark. They talk so much about that. And then they do something they should have never done. They open the ark of the covenant. They open the ark of the covenant. And you guys, as far as I can tell, Raiders of the Lost Ark has it somewhat right. <laughs> if you're Harrison Ford, you're right to say, close your eyes. No one is to allowed to look at the glory of the Lord. And what happens, the men from Beth Shemeth open it up, thinking their good luck charm is back, the mojo is back, and they're killed. It is terribly sad. They do know better. 
This is like crossing, looking both ways before you cross the street. All of Israel knows you can't open the ark. And they take this incredible sign of the glorious Almighty and they chum up with it like you can just be buddies with the ark. You can just open it up and clean it out however you want. And so, guess what happens? Here's where the language is so similar to what, um, to what was happening in the, Philistine, the towns of Philistia. They had said this, and listen to this familiar language now, the people mourned because of the heavy blow the Lord had dealt them. Now talking about Israel again. And the men of Beth Shemeth asked, Who can stand in the presence of the Lord, this holy God? And what did they do? They sent messengers to a town about 10 miles north and said, Hey, Philistines, return the ark. Y'all want it? And it just shows your heart. Again, another opportunity to go, Lord, we're sorry. We've been treating you like you're a chum old pal. We've been treating you like you were a, you know, a rabbit's foot. No. They said, no, I don't want to have anything to do with it. They act just like the Philistines. I don't want to have anything to do with it. They will not take God on His terms. My ordination was supposed to be one of the most beautiful experiences. That service itself was supposed to be one of those incredible experiences. And there was some real beauty to it. But I kneeled down and had elders lay hands on me. And about halfway through the prayer of them, I went, I heard, you're a liar. You have lied. You're about to take the mantle of authority of one who preaches the word of God and you lied about the very thing you're taking the mantle of authority on. The Ark of the Covenant was gone for seven months. I think it took me about seven months. Scriptures say that when the Ark comes back to Beth Shemeth, the cows are lowing all the way. During that seven months where I before I was able to deal with the fact that I had lied, the Lord's goodness had lowed all the way to me several times. And I was going, yeah, you know, I, yeah, Lord, you're right. I, I'm, I was wrong. I shouldn't have lied. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. And if I just deal with this with you alone, I'll, it'll be good. I don't actually have to tell the person I lied to that I lied to him, right? I don't have to actually make this any bigger, right? It's just, you know, against you alone have I sinned. I don't know, you know, kind of abusing the scriptures and, and quoting them out of context. And, um, and, and that's what I was doing. I was, I was just trying to finagle my way out of it. I, listen, you guys, this is serious stuff. I don't get ordained. I don't have a job. I don't have a job. I got mortgage problems. I got, I got uh, husband-wife problems too, right, honey? <laughs> um, I got major problems. I mean, huge things. It's a vocational issue. They could easily have the authority to say, no, you're right, you're lied, you need to take a year off and come back. And they would have been right and good and okay to do that. But there ain't no way I was trusting Jesus for that kind of stuff. And so I managed my way, managed my way for seven months, trying to hoodwink him into all the things that I would do. And it just was empty and fruitless. Me treating Jesus like an add-on, an addendum, as if he were not the Lord, that he were not the one who was my God, but... He was a God of mine to use and manipulate. By the end of chapter 6, we realize that God is not created in our image or the image of a box that we can carry around, that He is not our image, in our image or for our purposes by themselves. He doesn't come rushing to fix our plan or flying into the service of us when we feel threatened or risk. He does come and rescue, but not on our terms, on His terms. God of Israel is, in fact, close to us and in control over us 
is what these passages say. And then you get into 1 Samuel 7. And this is the part that Pastor Howard read. And basically it goes like this. When it got up to Kirith Jerium, the ark got up there, it sat for a while. It was really interesting. There's this great textual note that says, they, uh, they consecrated Eleazar. I don't even know who Eleazar is. Nobody really does. They consecrated Eleazar to care for the, for the Ark of the Covenant. They set somebody apart to actually care for this thing, to guard it. To, to, they had a heart that started to begin with repentance. And as, as you will read, in, as we've already read and you will read later in 1 Samuel 7, it, it, it begins to start with mourning over their sin. And Samuel starts leading in a national uh, and religious repentance where they start going, oh, we've messed up. And Samuel goes, if you have, think you really have messed up, if you really are mourning over your sin, then get rid of your asterisk poles, get rid of your temple prostitution, get rid of your Baal sacrifice, Get rid of all those things and turn to Christ. Oh, it doesn't say Christ. Turn to Yahweh alone. Or before Christ. (laughs) Turn to Yahweh alone. And they go, okay, we'll do it. And they did. And they gather in Mitzpah. And you can't really tell from the text if they gather in Mitzpah for fighting or they gather in Mitzpah for this repentance, this public kind of, you know, you talk about a tent revival. It's a tent revival where we're all going to say, we messed up. That doesn't get everybody excited now, does it? But that's what they do. They gather and they, and, and, um, Samuel, the priest, makes sacrifice for them. He makes sacrifice for them in this beautiful, uh, ceremony where he calls out to God's people and says, we've done wrong. We confess our sin. We are sorry for what we've done. And Philistines get excited. They're like, oh, they're all gathered. I think that they were probably gathered for a public repentance, not in any way shaped for war, for warfare. And the Philistines see them all gathered in one sense, uh, unready for battle. And uh, the Philistines say, we're going to step in on this. We're going to take advantage of this situation well. And this is not in your, um, uh, in your text. But it says, while Samuel was sacrificing the burnt offerings, the Philistines drew near to engage Israel in battle. But that day the Lord thundered with loud thunder against the Philistines and threw them into such a panic that they were routed before the Israelites. They didn't have to draw a sword yet. Their repentance had power. Their public going, you know, we've messed up, brought the Lord, the one, the, the real power behind and said, yes, I will protect you. Repent before me. There is only one thing. And that one thing is to come confessing before me, Israel. And if you do that, I will take care of you completely. And that's really the moral of these stories. The moral of these stories is this. It doesn't get better until we repent. In fact, it gets worse. Those six or seven months where I was listlessly trying to pastor were some of the most difficult. And I remember sitting down one day going, okay, you win, I'm done. I can't handle it anymore. And I called the committee chair and I said, I gotta gotta confess something to you. Meanwhile, you know, I'm, I'm wondering, this Christ Central hasn't existed yet. Nothing, this is all could be done. My whole, my whole career, my whole vocation. And I so said, I have to confess something to you. And he was, um, he, I had to leave a message and, to set the time. And he called back and said, you know what, brother? No matter what it is, I'm sure that it will be okay. I am ready to forgive you no matter what you're about to tell me. What a beautiful statement, wasn't it? So I'm a little bit more girded up. It felt like the lowing cattle coming towards me. You know, the, the Ark of the Covenant of Grace coming towards me. And um, so I met with him. And I sat with this man who was my pastor in many ways. In some ways, uh, while I was at, 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 at school around here, he's just 
Uh, I'll even tell you his name. His name is Wade Malloy. He's pastor here at uh, South Lake Church and up in Huntersville. And uh, I sat with him in his big desk in his big office. And I said, brother, I got to tell you what I've done. And I relayed the story. And he looked over his desk, actually came around his desk and he said, I am sorry that you have been living with this without freedom for this long. You need to know, and he looked me dead in the eye and he goes, it is over here. You are forgiven on behalf of the, com- on behalf of the committee and I have a committee meeting next week and I will deal with this. They will know and they will follow my lead in forgiveness to you. He has about 18 years in this presbytery. He has a, um, a, a weightiness, a heaviness about him. Who will, go be- who will go before the Lord for me? Well, it was Wade Malloy. And Wade came in and he said, we're done. We're done now. This is it. Now you go pastor people. The moral of the story is it doesn't get better until we repent. Now I would love to tell you, and then Christ Central was planted. It took off. Now we have a thousand members. I actually don't want to have a thousand members. But, you know, I mean, I wish I could tell you it was all better. Well, it is on the inside. If you go on in your passage, it says there was finally peace among the Amorites. And the Israelites from the Philistines left. The Amorites are a different crowd. The Philistines, the invaders, were messing with both, both crowds. And there's finally peace in the land because of this repentance and because of the, how the Lord responded in this. And if the moral of the story is it never gets better until we repent, whatever you're going through in your heart, whatever's in there which the Spirit's nugging at you, brothers, sisters, <laughs> I beg you for your own sake, go ahead and let it go. The Lord is gracious. He is gracious and will forgive you, not because you deserve it, but because He's good. He's good and does that. And He's promised. The meaning of the passage, the moral is it doesn't get better to repent. The meaning is this. I will be your God and you will be my people. The covenant language of old. All these things. What is? It's the Ark of the Covenant. Well, the covenant was this great promise, this vow, that God would say, I will be your God and you will be my people. And he pursues that with everything in him. Listen, he said, I will be your God and you will be my people. And he made it so that the only thing they could do was repent at mitzvah. He ran me through seven months of torturous lack of inner peace. <laughs> and he said, I will be your God and you will be my people. And in fact, I will be my, your God, you will be my people, and I will let you serve them even though you lied. If you rest in my grace alone. Now, if you keep trying to cover up, it won't happen. God will pursue you. The hounds of heaven lick graciously at your feet. Let them go ahead and grab you up. Let them go ahead and grab you up. There's the message and the moral and there's the momentum. And I will do it very quickly. And that is, everything in this story is leading to the next chapter, which is a story about Israel having a king. And everything from that on, on is, is, is uh, from then on is about Israel not just having a king, but having a good king. And that good king becomes David. But David really isn't a good king with a capital G. He's a messed up uh, scalawag just like everybody else in the Old Testament. It is all leading to this one. The momentum of this passage is leading to the one who is a better priest than Eli, who's a better prophet and priest than Samuel, who's a greater king than David or Saul. The momentum of this passage is leading us to not the Ark of the Covenant, this visible sign of, who, of, of, of God, but Jesus himself. 
In the new covenant, you get Jesus himself who came in as priest and said, I make sacrifice in the new temple, which is my body, and I will bleed for, I will be the sacrifice for them. You have the one who's prophetic who says, I will preach good news to the poor. You have the one who's king who says that every knee shall bow before me. Dagon's knee, materialism's knee, Ashtoreth's knee, ambition's knee, Giorgio's knee, Christ Central's knee. Every knee will bow to this wonderful king. The momentum of the story leads us to Christ himself. And that's what this story is about. That is what all these stories are about. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you that you tell and weave the great story of your faithfulness. Lord, I beg you. I beg you with everything in us that we would hear these stories as our own, that we would come to you on your own terms, that we would have the courage, the blessed courage, and the blessed peace of knowing that we can come to you as train wrecks, that we can come to you as liars and fools, that we can come to you as sinners, and we can say, Jesus, have mercy on us, and not because you're obligated by our confession, but because you're good and gracious, that you will come and you will heal us and you will say, yes, I receive you. I receive you. I will be your God and you will be my people. And we ask this in your name. Amen.